Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I would like to talk about the poet A.E. Houseman. I'll explain that siren a bit later on. A.E. Houseman was uh, born in Bromsgrove, Worcestershire in 1859 and he died in Cambridge in 1936. What was he doing in Cambridge? Well, he became an absolute top-end classic scholar, very highly venerated and uh, a professor of Latin at Cambridge where one of his students was Enoch Powell. Always handy if you don't want to be the worst person in the room to have such a student. If you look at uh, A.E. Houseman's... Uh, it won't, the, the siren doesn't go off every time I say the name. If you look at his headstone in Ludlow in Shropshire, the uh, academic aspect of his life gets top billing, the top line under his name, says Professor of Latin and Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. And then second billing, author of A Shropshire Lad. And it is that collection of 63 poems published in 1896, A Shropshire Lad, that I want to talk about today. It's kind of amazing that this grumpy old academic from Cambridge University. I must say I'm calling Houseman old, but he was only in his late 30s when A Shropshire Lad was published. It's just that, you know, gravitas always ages a man. Anyway, this massive classics scholar and general difficult bloke. I'll give you a quote. This is actually from his obituary in the Times, where generally, I would say, in obituaries, punches are pulled. But it says of Houseman in that obituary, on occasions he would be so unapproachable as to diffuse a frost. <laughs> they, they don't write obits like that anymore. It goes on, diffuse a frost and shroud himself in impenetrable reserve. So this was a spiky old Cambridge professor who wrote these incredibly popular poems. A Shropshire lad was a massive seller. I mean, by poetry standards, it was, you know, it, it was a hit. And the poems, considering the fact that he was a major classicist, were not dripping with classical allusions and uh, academic references. The 63 poems are almost all short ballads, sort of folk poetry, simple language, regular metre, regular rhyme. They, they are what I would imagine most Cambridge and Oxford academics hate most. They are accessible and uh, how on earth did that happen? How did that man who diffused frost write these beautiful poems? The American poet John Berryman said of Houseman, and I'm going to read this out, 
that he was an absolutely marvellous minor poet. <laughs> That's such, such a killer twist at the end where the minor sneaks in. I think what Berryman meant was that Houseman's poetry, particularly A Shropshire Lad, which is what we know him best for, was apparently simple and short and, as I say, accessible. But it was marvellous because they go so deep, these little poems. And I don't mean little in a patronising way, I just mean the amount of space they take up on the page. One of the early critics who wrote a review of uh, Shropshire Lad, said you could read it in about half an hour, but there were things in it that would stay with you for the rest of your life. That's quite a good review. I'd settle for that. They really get under your skin, these poems. And they have repeated themes of loss and yearning and absolutely full-on sadness a bit like when you go to a gallery and they've got a load of those Monet water lilies paintings it's like he's worked it over and over and over again trying to find all the ways that water lilies shimmer and reflect light and change through the day and through the seasons and I would suggest that Houseman tries to do that with sadness I'll give you an example because I think it's frustrating to hear someone talking about poetry without getting the actual poetry. And I know it's a fault of mine, so I'm going straight in on... Um, I wish I could tell you which number this was of the uh, A Shropshire Lad poems. They're all numbered, but they're numbered, and this is where the Latin scholar thing does creep in. They're in Roman numerals, which I've never been good at once you get past about nine so this is xl number xl i think that's 40 but i wouldn't put x pounds on that i might put v v pounds but that would be as far as i would risky this is two stanzas and a total of eight lines this poem they're not titled the poems, they just get their Roman numerals. So, um, here we go, XL. Not extra large, au contraire. Into my heart, an air that kills, from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. One of the regular themes in this is exile, of having left your home and for whatever reason not looking like you're going to go back there. And always yearning. He is the high priest of literary yearning. Okay. Into my heart an air that kills from yon far country blows. So this air blows into his this sort of breeze 
blows into his heart from a far country and it is the far country of his memory of his past where he grew up but into my heart an air that kills so it's interesting I um, am a big William Wordsworth fan as some of you will know I'm reaching now for uh, my collected Wordsworth to read you a bit from Tintin Abbey, very famous um, Wordsworth poem, and he talks about how much he loves the area around Tintin Abbey and beyond, but in that general area. And then he says, though absent long, this is Wordsworth now, though absent long, these forms of beauty have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye. So it's not like I, they've gone, but oft in lonely rooms and mid the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet. So I use those memories of places I'm estranged from at the moment, places I can't get back to. I use them as fuel when I'm in the big city or wherever I am that I don't want to be. It's the opposite of what the speaker in a, in a Shropshire lad experiences. These memories of home, thank goodness, I thought I was going to get through this without a siren. Heaven forfend. These memories of home, they, they don't bring any solace at all to the speaker. They sort of poke and pinch at him. Into my heart, an air that kills. So, ouch, I'm remembering that stuff. From yon far country blows. Far, I think, geographically, possibly, but certainly spiritually. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? You may think blue remembered hills, that rings a bell. There used to be a big BBC drama thing that my mom and dad and me used to watch regularly. And at the end of it, my dad would nearly always say, well, that was a funny ending. They were quite experimental plays often. And Dennis Potter famous playwright wrote a play for today called Blue Remembered Hills which was actually about life, his life in the forest of Dean in Gloucestershire so not Shropshire at all but you'll find as we discuss this that Shropshire is not necessarily Shropshire but we'll come back to that as well so into my heart an air that kills from yon far country blows. This memory has come back to me. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? Blue, I think, I know it's tempting to think blue because he's so big on sadness. I don't, I'm not feeling that, that sense of blue in this. I think it's just when you are in a place and the hills are in the distance and they look blue in the mist or whatever it is that makes distant mountains look blue. So he's just experiencing, what is this? What am I seeing? What's coming to my mind here? What is this that's making me feel uncomfortable? What is the air that kills? What are those 
blue remembered hills, what spires, what farms are those. It's like the whole image has come back to him in a bang. And then there's a break between the stanzas. And during that break, he seems to have regained his senses and realised what it is that has suddenly risen up in his consciousness. And he says... That is the land of lost content. Now, this is the opposite of what Wordsworth was saying. Wordsworth says, this is almost like medicine, I take, remembering the areas around Tintern Abbey, for example, or remembering uh, the Lake District when I'm not there. But all the speaker here gets out of it is what's lost, that is the land of lost content. So I used to be content there. That's gone. I see it shining plain. So I know it's truly risen up in his, in his mind's eye and he's fully aware of what he's experiencing and what he's feeling. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again so you get that switch we actually are allowed a little bit of joy the happy highways where i went and then bang and cannot come again it's gone i've lost it and i don't think for a second he's just talking about a physical place here he's sort of lost that state of mind the happy highways where i went and cannot come again so I hope you feel that sadness. As I read it, Houseman is staring at me from a, a card that someone sent me on Houseman's birthday with a big black and white picture of him on the front with his drooping moustache and slightly impatient expression. So how did such a poem, such a deep emotional poem with some sense of foreboding that you can hardly put your finger on there's always something a bit uneasy making about these poems i may have mentioned before on these podcasts there's an e.m forster novel where he talks about beethoven's fifth symphony and the character says it unsettles them because there is this moment in it where they hear the goblin footfalls, that's what they call them. And it's this music that just sounds like it might be from a dark magic source, the goblin footfalls. And if ever I read anything in a poem or on the rare occasions I lower myself to read prose, there are moments, and you get it in music a lot, where you just think, Oh, my stomach's just rolled over. Why is that? It's the goblin footfalls. And I think that a Shropshire lad is full of those goblin footfalls. There's something, this, what happened? It's like when he looks back on this place, yes, there was content and there was happy highways, but it's like something maybe poison that before he left. The air that kills is coming from that place. It is the land of lost content. The way he structures that makes it sound like the, the content was lost while he was still there. Maybe he had to flee. All those thoughts. 
it's just a bit unsettling. This was the first of the Shropshire Lad poems that he wrote, although it's number XL. So I think he he starts off really with a poem which sums up all that pain and yearning and that unsettled nature. I have to say, yes, it is strange that this difficult academic wrote these really deep from the heart poems. You know, a man who um, who surrounds himself in, um, what was that phrase again, impenetrable reserve, doesn't seem like the sort of guy who would open up like this. And that's why it's interesting to read what he says about the process of uh, writing poetry and about poetry in general. I'm not sure he actually wanted to write poetry. I think he felt safer behind the academic mask. And he described poetry not as creation, but as he called it, more of a secretion. It sort of oozed out of him. It fell off him like windfall fruit, like he had no part in it. And the description seems to be like he's slightly distancing himself from it. The alarm that I played at the beginning of this podcast, yes, I pressed the button to make that happen, was the A.E. Houseman alarm, which I've been using on my Saturday morning radio show for many years. What happened was I interviewed a, uh, a comedy poet and we were talking about the nature of composition of poetry. And I said, well, A. E. Houseman, and as I said the name, something went wrong with the desk in the studio and a loud screeching noise came out. And I said, oh, that's the A. E. Houseman alarm. It goes off every time you mention A. E. Houseman on commercial radio. It was a joke, but then every time he cropped up and... Um, Listeners to the show would make sure that it happened a lot. We would send off that alarm. Anyway, the reason I mentioned A.E. Houseman to the poet was that Houseman said he would go and have a pint at lunchtime and that would just about chill him enough that on the way home, two or three stanzas of poetry would just happen. They would just drop off him. And... Again, a slight distancing from the process of poetry. I can't help this. It comes off me like shedding skin. I'm going to read you one more quote about him on poetry and then we're going to go back to his actual poetry. But I do love this. And again, this sounds like a man who almost disapproves of poetry and certainly the writing of poetry, even though he is a best-selling poet. Listen to this. Experience has taught me. I see I'm, I've gone stern. I've gone stern of tone just because I know I'm reading Houseman. Experience has taught me when I am shaving of a morning to keep watch over my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, we all should do that. To keep watch over my thoughts because if a line of poetry strays into my memory... I don't know if he's talking about new poetry being composed spontaneously or he's remembering his poetry or someone else's. Anyway, 
Experience has taught me when I am shaving of a morning to keep watch over my thoughts because if a line of poetry strays into my memory, my skin bristles so that the razor ceases to act. So this is a poet, uh, whether he likes it or not, saying I have to try and not think about poetry when I'm shaving because my hair stands on end and I can't get the razor through them. Brutishly nuts and bolts approach. And he goes on, this particular symptom is accompanied by a shiver down the spine. Oh no, awful. I think this is my favourite bit. There is another, it's another symptom of thinking about poetry without... Um, without some sort of harness. There is another which consists in a constriction of the throat and a precipitation of water to the eyes. <laughs> well, obviously, you don't want any of that if you're a crusty old academic. Anyway, he couldn't, he couldn't stop it happening. I mean, I don't know if if he says this stuff because he wants to deliberately distance himself from this urge he has to express his deeper feelings. Or maybe the poetry does, maybe it does in some ways bypass his intellect and sort of get out against his will. I know it's hard to imagine, but there's something weird going on with crusty old academic houseman and this beautiful, lyrical, melancholy poet. Let's look at another one. I'm if I'm loath now. Oh, this is uh, my old favourite, XXXV1. I'm pretty confident that's 36. White in the moon, the long road lies. The moon stands blank above. White in the moon the long road lies that leads me from my love. Still hangs the hedge without a gust. Still, still the shadows stay. My feet upon the moonlit dust pursue the ceaseless way. That's just halfway through this poem. You can see there's a regular sort of ballad feel to them so let's have a look at it white in the moon the long road lies so we know now he's traveling a long road it's night time obviously and it makes it a little bit supernatural the fact that the road is white like this because of the moonlight it it's illuminated this road it is made significant and seems to be separated from the landscape by its whiteness its white glow a bit like he now seems to feel separated from the landscape because he's moving across and we will see moving away white in the moon the long road lies the moon stands blank above he's walking now under an indifferent universe the moon is blank above white in the moon the long road lies and i think that repetition of the first line and it becoming the third line suggests a long repetitive walk that goes on 
Just going to do that first stanza. White in the moon, the long road lies, the moon stands blank above. White in the moon, the long road lies, that leads me from my love. We imagine the love is a person, but it could be the land that he loves, I suppose. Still hangs the hedge without a gust. Still, still, the shadows stay. So this landscape is completely unmoving. Still hangs the hedge without a gust. No wind, nothing is moving. Still, still, the shadows stay. And I guess if nothing is moving, inevitably the shadows remain still as well. So it is still the landscape. It is remaining. It is not moving. But he, as it says in the next two lines, my feet upon the moonlit dust pursue the ceaseless way. So he is moving. He's moving on and moving out. And his feet upon the moonlit dust, it gives it a special feel. And now it was a road before, but now it's dust. There is a sense of loss, a sense of dryness, a sense of something that was alive that isn't alive anymore. Pursue My feet upon the moonlit dust pursue the ceaseless way on and on and on the opposite direction, it seems, from that which he wishes to travel. Okay, the last two stanzas. This next one is odd because, well, I'll read the next two stanzas and then we'll talk about it. The world is round, so travellers tell, and straight though reach the track, trudge on, trudge on, twill all be well. The way will guide one back. But ere the circle homeward hies, far, far must it remove. White in the moon the long road lies that leads me from my love. So this third stanza really does sound like, I'm going to say, less intelligent people with their pocket philosophy, their sort of, self-help attitude to life saying well, okay you're leaving now but you know the world's round so if you keep walking eventually you'll come back home and obviously they're not so stupid as to mean he's going to walk around the entire globe but they're using it as a sort of a metaphor that the world is round and we all end up back home in in the end in some way or by some route incorrect of course as he suggests the world is round so travelers tell has got now there i think you can hear the academic because someone says to you the world is round you're thinking yeah well that is a real revelation mate and i think he's suggesting that this sort of dull truism is the sort of stuff you get from travelers the world is round, so travellers tell. I mean, he's suggesting as well, I think, that maybe staying at home gives you a bit more wisdom if this is the sort of uh, piffle that travellers come out with. The world is round, so travellers tell, 
and straight though reach the track. So although it appears to be a straight road ahead, guess what? Trudge on, trudge on. Twill all be well. Twill all be well is has to be a quotation from Travellers because the speaker of a Shropshire lad never thinks anything is going to be well. Trudge on, trudge on, twill all be well. The way will guide one back. Yes. I think that is said, to, I think it's to be spat out. I, I sometimes think that poems should come with stage directions telling you um, how to read them out loud. But this one just sounds... We've had this speaker walking this long road in this still environment that seems to feel less and less part of him. This strange moonlit white road, this dust on his feet. And then he remembers the bright and bobbly advice of half-witted travellers and he shoots it down in the last stanza but ere the circle homeward hies so before I finish that circle and head home far far must it remove and that's a bit like the still still of the second stanza emphasis he wanted to let us know that the shadows were absolutely still and now he wants us to know that this walk, that this journey, whatever it is, is far, 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 far must it remove. So he's being taken away. And then he ends by repeating the last two lines of the first stanza. White in the moon, the long road lies that leads me from my love. And I think the effect of that is to say, I started off feeling very, very bleak as I walk on this moonlit road away from my love, whatever my love is. But I then remembered the chirpy advice of travellers. I'm now repeating the last two lines of the first stanza in the last stanza to close the poem, to make absolutely clear to everyone that the stupid advice of the stupid travellers has been utterly unhelpful to my mood that's what I get but again there's always the goblin footfalls why is he leaving why does that white road feel so strange in the moonlight why is everything so still the shadows completely on moving. I just want to read you the first stanza of 31. I'm getting confident now, if you notice, with me numerals. Just the first four lines. And I have heard it said that the true main character of a Shropshire lad is Shropshire. And there is lots of uh, place names and references to the landscape. Here... On Wenlock Edge, the wood's in trouble. His forest fleece, the reekin heaves. The reekin is a is a hill. We used to say as a kid that someone had gone all round the reekin if they've uh, had a long-winded explanation of something. 
Uh, on Wenlock Edge, the wood's in trouble, so the wood seems to be blowing all over the place. His forest fleece, the reek in heave, so the wind coming from the reek and is blowing off the wood's forest fleece, its leaves, in other words. The gale, it plies the saplings double, it bends over these young trees, and thick on seven snow the leaves. So the river, which runs through there, the seven, is thick with the leaves of the wood because it's been so blown. So we've got Wenlock Edge, the Reekin, and the seven in this Shropshire, Shropshire, Shropshire. And you're saying, well, it's called a Shropshire, lad, Frank. It's fair enough. The truth is that at time of writing... We're not even sure if Houseman had ever been to Shropshire. He'd certainly hardly ever been there. It's not about Shropshire. And I think the fact that he didn't know Shropshire was the big plus because it existed for him only in his imagination. So it can be a sort of pastoral ideal. Carefree lads and rose-lipped maidens cavorting in the hayricks in Shropshire sunshine. It's all, he, he's got all that to use. He actually, Worcestershire, where he comes from, adjoins, it, it adjoins Shropshire. So it's a real classic case of the other man's grass is always greener. He, he, he doesn't write about his own county. He writes about the one next door that he's never really been to because it's better not to know it in a mechanical, nuts and bolts way, it's better to just have it in your imagination, likely to be released after that lunchtime pint. It never really mattered that he didn't know Shropshire until um, a Shropshire lad became a massive sensation to the point where people used to go on pilgrimages to Shropshire to see the places in the poems and uh, sometimes they found that that weather vane atop the steeple uh, that was referred to wasn't actually there. And uh, neither was the steeple often. But it doesn't matter to us. It's a pastoral place. It's the home of the speaker. And it's idyllic most of the time. But also capable of producing pain. I want to read one more poem, and I'm going to break a rule of mine here, because I don't like, and you'll know this if you've uh, listened to more than half a dozen of these podcasts, I don't like, I'm not very fond of biographical criticism, which is, there's a dogfight outside. It's all right. No one was hurt in the recording of this podcast, as far as I know. Anyway, I'm going to LV, which is um, the next poem I want to talk about. This one is heavy with goblin footfalls. I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to talk about possible interpretations. I know that's what always happens, but more so in this, I think. 
Westward on the high-hilled plains, where for me the world began, still, I think, in newer veins, frets the changeless blood of man. So westward, always westward, there's always something special about the West, isn't it? That's why I grew up obsessed with Wild West-based movies. Westward on the high-hilled plains, he's referring, of course, to Shropshire again, where for me the world began, where I grew up, where I was born, where the speaker was born. Still, I think in newer veins frets the changeless blood of man. So, still, even though I'm not there, I think still there in newer veins, in young men, frets the changeless blood of man. There is still that anxiety that I used to feel. Now, we've had this growing up painted as an idyllic time, but like I say... But from that uh, Blue Remembered Hills poem, you know, the air that kills and the land of lost content, there's always a hint that it wasn't quite so idyllic. It's become so after he left. But there's always a shadow that falls across his descriptions of of that uh, beautiful place he grew up westward on the high hilled plains where for me the world began still i think in newer veins frets the changeless blood of man so there are still young men there as fretful and anxious as i was okay now that other lads than i strip to bathe on seven shore they no help for all they try, tread the mill I trod before. So these are new lads now who are growing up in Shropshire. He's far away. Other lads than I stripped to bathe on Severn Shore, that idyllic freedom of this poetic Shropshire. Just stripping down, maybe naked and swimming in the river. They know help for all they try, so there's nothing they can do about it. Tread the mill I trod before. So they're making, it seem, some of the same old general mistakes that he made. Okay. There, when hueless is the West, so when there's no colour in the West, and the darkness hushes wide... So night is falling now, the, the sun has disappeared, no one's swimming. Where the lad lies down to rest, stands the troubled dream beside. So, it's darkened both literally and metaphorically. There when hueless is the west and the darkness hushes wide, so it's quiet, it's dark, night has fallen. Where the lad lies down to rest, one of those lads who was swimming in the seven earlier that day, stands the troubled dream beside. So there's some sort of darker spirit. I don't think he's actually saying that it's a spirit. It's got a gothic feel to it. The lad lies down to rest, stands the troubled dream beside. What is that? 
troubled dream. It's the old goblin footfalls again. There's something disturbing and something mildly menacing about this, but we don't know quite what it is. We know that this young man frets, just like the speaker did. We know that they know help for all they try, tread the mill I trod before. So they're repeating some cycle that he experienced when he was back home. And now, even in sleep, where the lad lies down to rest, stands the troubled dream beside. Last stanza. I'm going to look at this poem again from a different angle. There, on thoughts that once were mine, day looks down the eastern steep. So the sun rises now on thoughts that once were mine. So this young lad back in Shropshire now has the same thoughts that I did when I was back there, when I was a Shropshire lad. And the youth at morning shine makes the vow he will not keep. So that lad who we last saw lying down to rest with a troubled dream standing at the side of the bed, now wakes up, morning shine, it's a new day, optimism, and he makes the vow he will not keep. So there's a sense here of cyclical failings in some way. The changeless blood of man, the mill I trod before, the sun looking down on thoughts that once were mine and the lad making a vow he will not keep. There's some repetition, terrible cycle of events going on here. But we don't really know what is the troubled dream. What is the vow that he will not keep? What is the mill that the speaker trod before? So here I go into the biographical criticism. I might never do this again, but I do think sometimes, very occasionally, biography really is like switching a light on in a poem. I find often it undermines a poem and makes it more like a diary entry. It reduces it. But here, I think this poem is enriched by the possibility that this is a personal expression. And one thing we know about Houseman is when he was a young man, he fell utterly in love with another young man who did not return those feelings, who was not gay. And Houseman was not destroyed by it, but maybe, maybe it helped to form that impenetrable reserve maybe it formed that frost that kept people at bay when he grew a little older i think this could be a poem could be about being a gay man in the 19th century these poems remember were published in 1896 a year after Incidentally, a year after Oscar Wilde was in prison, it wasn't an easy time, obviously, to be anything other than 
heterosexual. Let's read it again with this as a possible POV, a possible point of view. Westward on the high hill plains where for me the world began, still I think in newer veins frets the changeless blood of man. So, yes, it's that houseman melancholy, but we don't know what. We just think that changeless blood of man, there are frets and anxieties and worries going on in newer veins that went on in mine all those years ago. And whatever the basis is for that fretting, it is in the blood. It's intrinsic. It is part of who and what the lad is. Now that other lads than I strip to bathe on Severn shore, so I don't want to make this cheap and obvious, but it is, you can imagine, the beauty of young men stripping to bathe in the, the River Severn. They know help for all they try. So these lads, no help, no, no help. There's nothing they can do about it. And also I think a suggestion that there is no help for them externally from anyone. They know help for all they try. Tread the mill I trod before. A treadmill was a pre-industrial machine, obviously, but also a form of hard labour for prisoners. And I think most importantly in this particular context, incredibly repetitive, round and round and round. And I think he's saying the same old things are going on. There when hueless is the west and the darkness hushes wide, so when night falls, when it's quiet, where the lad lies down to rest stands the troubled dream beside. And maybe the troubled dream is one of those other lads who stripped to bathe on Severn shore. There on thoughts that once were mine, so I had these feelings. Day looks down the eastern steep, and the youth at morning shine makes the vow he will not keep. I'm not going to have those thoughts anymore. I'm not going to indulge them. There'll be no fantasies. It's a bright new day, and it's time to move on. Look, it's a possible interpretation of this poem for me, and this is a thing to say about a poem from Shropshire Lad, it makes it even sadder. It fills it with even more yearning. And it even, it even hammers home that pain of the exile, of being separated from one's environment, is what I think. There are, I think I've talked about three and a bit poems there's another 59 and a bit you should go and look at. It's an incredible collection. And when you first look at it, you will think, well, it's pretty basic, this. But believe me, these poems are like Doctor Who's TARDIS. And yes, I do still call him Doctor Who, not the Doctor. They are much, much bigger on the inside. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 